If you have a Bible this morning, I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. At the beginning of every year, about this time, we find ourselves with something of a natural break in the normal routines of our lives. Our culture especially enjoys, at the beginning of January every year, looking back to the previous year and what was accomplished or not accomplished, what was new and interesting, and then looking forward to the beginning of the next year. Often we make resolutions about how we will be different in the months to come. Wanting to take the most of this opportunity. The pastoral team decided last year that we wanted to build into the life of our church a regular time for reflection as, and reorientation along two lines, specifically the two pillars upon which the entirety of the Christian life rests, our communion with God through prayer and through the Word of God. These two pillars are some of the most common but often the most neglected parts of Christianity. At its simplest, the Word of God, the Bible, is the means by which God speaks to us, His people. And prayers, of course, are means of speaking back to Him in light of what He says to us. So these two pillars, regular Bible intake and prayer, are the things that grow and develop and fuel our fellowship with God. Without these things, our fellowship with Him will be weakened and anemic and far below what He would delight in and what we would find delightful. Therefore, the elders, uh, as we announced last year, desire that every year we begin by kind of setting the temperature for our communion with God by, by encouraging and exhorting you uh, to spend time in fellowship with Him through prayer and the Word. And this year, as we seek to do that, we want to find these two messages based around the theme of holiness as the people of God. Now, we're only actually looking at a few verses uh, towards the end of John 17, but because our verses are in John 17, we find ourselves in one of the most magnificent passages in all the Bible. For here, Jesus offers a prayer for His disciples, not only those original 12, that He is prepping for His imminent death and resurrection, but also for all who would ever believe because of their testimony. That means in these verses, Jesus Christ is praying even for you and I today if we claim the name of Him in faith. And so even though we're only going to look at verses 17 through 19, what I would like us to do is read through the entirety of this prayer, which we find beginning at verse 1. John writes, When Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that the Son may glorify You, since You have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom You have given Him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. 
All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they may also be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. May God bless the reading of his word. Our focus this morning is on verses 19, or excuse me, 17 through 19, where Jesus prays, uh, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. And as we begin there, we want to ask this question in our minds, what does it mean to be sanctified? What does that word mean? It sounds very churchy, but what does it mean? Well, in the original languages in which the Bible was written, the word sanctify comes from the same word that we get for holy or holiness. At its core, this word speaks to one person or one thing that is set apart from everything else. Thus, in praying for believers to be sanctified, Jesus is praying that they be made holy, that they be set apart from the world. Specifically, as we think about this then, what we see is that as God's people, we are to be sanctified for God. We are to be sanctified for God. That word holy, again, has a number of of different ways it can be used in the Bible, but when it's predicated on God, whenever God is the one who is said to be holy, when when He is the holy one of Israel, what we have in that word is as close to an adjective for God as anything that we have in the Bible. For God to be holy, even as we sang holy, 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 it means that He is God and, and no other is. It speaks to his very Godness. He alone is God and no one else is. Everything else that exists is not God. He is uniquely God. And so in that sense, his holiness stands as the foundation for all of his other attributes. However, when things become associated with this holy God, they also can be called holy, though in a different way. So for an example, in the Old Testament, we see everyday people and everyday items being set apart for exclusive service to God and are therefore called holy. 
So we have a shovel that is made, an ordinary shovel, but it is called holy. It is consecrated. It is set apart. It is sanctified because it is to be used for one purpose only, to take the ash away from the fire pit associated with the altar in the temple. It can't be used for anything else. Can't be used to knock the mud off the priest's sandals or to, to pick up the animal dung and ch- ch- chuck it out. No, 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 no. One thing and one thing only. It is sanctified for that purpose. Likewise, people can be set apart for God. Though clearly a sinner from birth, Aaron is said to be holy because he's been set apart from the rest of Israel for this task to be the great high priest of God's people. Furthermore, people aren't shovels. Did you know that? Sometimes they they act like they have the brains of a shovel, but but we're not shovels. We are in fact made in the image of God. We are moral beings. Therefore, there is an element of morality that comes to us when we think about us being holy. And therefore, what we see is that in being set apart and being sanctified for God, we are set apart or sanctified in order to keep God's ways. In order to keep God's ways. Now, when we think about holiness, that's often what we think about, about, about the moral issue that's enjoined here. And, when, and, and this is where that aspect of, of morality in terms of holiness comes together in this word of being sanctified. Someone who is set apart for God will be one who walks in his ways. When God sets us apart for himself, that's what Jesus prays for here, the expectation is that we will live according to God's ways and God's ways alone. When Whatever God loves, we will also love that. Whatever God hates, we will come to hate that. Whatever God has as a purpose for which he is moving things, we will long for that purpose to come about. And so it's not surprising then that when Jesus prays in verse 16, he says that his people are not of this world just as he is not of the world. Now we need to just clarify our thinking here because often when we hear the word world, we think people, right? Uh, So when we read about John 3.16, for God so loved the world, we're thinking all the people in the world or all the nations of the world. But whenever John uses in his gospel the word world, he's not thinking about people. It's the word cosmos, and it speaks to an entire system of worldliness that stands at enmity with God. It's an entire way of thinking and living and associating that, that, as, that is at, at, at odds with everything that God is and, and in all of His ways. And of course, the great temptation for us as God's people is this, that we profess faith in God, but we follow along with the world. That instead of following God's ways, we follow the world's ways, freely imbibing on their values, their attitudes, their beliefs, and their lifestyles. But notice what Jesus prays. He says, I do not ask you, Father, that you take them out of the world, but that you just simply keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I know these days it's probably a bit cliched, but it's true nonetheless, nonetheless, and we see why. Christians are to be in the world, but not of the world. That's, that's what Jesus is praying here. I, 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 I'm going to redeem these people, but we know, God, they're not going immediately to heaven. Wouldn't that be interesting? You, you, someone hears the gospel, then all of a sudden, brrr, they're gone, right? Beamed out just like Star Trek. And you're thinking, what happened to them, right? It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. Although our souls are united to Christ in heavenly places, we remain in this world. And yet, and yet, what does Jesus say? Do not let them succumb to the evil one. Do not let them simply go along with the flow, but rather, God, I pray that they be sanctified, they be set apart following your ways, not the world's ways. 
Now, why is that? Why does he pray that for us? Because we are set apart for God. We are sanctified for his ways because he wants us to accomplish God's mission. So we are sanctified for God that we might live out God's ways and also God's mission. God's mission. We are sanctified for God's mission. Right now, the military has been in the news uh, because of the proposed changes for women seeking service and in combat. And uh, apart from all those things for a minute, I want us to just think about some of the elite groups that they want to apply for without going through the same um, skill tests that the men go through. I want us to think about those elite groups of our armed forces. Think about people like the Navy SEALs and the Army Rangers and the Special Forces. Think about the lengths that the military goes to select the right people for those teams and then to train them to do and to accomplish things that ordinary soldiers can't do. They are, in one sense, set apart. They are sanctified. They are consecrated from the rest of the military for this special purpose. So think about the time and the money and the investment and the training and then to never deploy them into the field for anything. That would be quite a waste, wouldn't it? Likewise, Jesus says we have been sanctified from the world not to simply sit out from God's mission. We are to be part of God's mission. Verse 18 says, As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. What we see over and over and over again in John's Gospel is that being sanctified for God is always for a purpose, namely the purpose of His mission. So just as Jesus was set apart from the world, which we'll look at what that means in a few minutes for God's purposes, anointed by God's Spirit and sent into the world for the saving of sinners, so now we also are anointed by God's Spirit, set apart from the world and sent into the world to accomplish God's mission. We are sent as Jesus' ambassadors into a hostile world, declaring peace from a divine king made possible through the death and resurrection of Christ. The reality is no one in the church is meant to sit on the bench. We, we, we don't have a B-list for Christians. There is no second string. There is no reserve unit. Every disciple is part of the mission. Every disciple is meant to be making disciples. Just as Jesus was sent into the world, so now God sends us into the world. So this is what sanctification is all about. Our growth in holiness is not just for our own personal benefit. It's not just an end and of itself. Rather, it's about being set apart from the world that we might live for God's ways, according to God's ways, and for His mission. Our growth in holiness is an ongoing and ever-increasing equipping for our calling to share the gospel of Christ. But now we must ask, how does that sanctification take place? How does that growth in holiness actually happen? Jesus says we are not only sanctified for God, but we are secondly sanctified by the Word. We are sanctified by the Word. Jesus prays, sanctify them in the truth, your Word is truth. Now, it's important that we notice from the outset what might be obvious, but, is also is, but which is also essential, and that is this. Jesus is praying that we will be sanctified by God's Word. By God's Word. He says, your Word is truth. The kind of truth that they need to be sanctified by. 
Some of you that may have a background in philosophy or perhaps have taken a philosophy class in college at some point will be familiar with the name Immanuel Kant. He's the kind of philosopher who, who thinks in such a way and writes in such a way that, that the, the stream of philosophical thought uh, has him as one of these points of here's what people thought before Kant and here's what people thought in reaction to Kant. He's one of, he's, he's one of those people that no one ever just kind of goes around him. Uh, he, 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 uh, he's reacting to what's come before and now everybody reacts to what came and what he said. The problem is Kant was no friend of the church. In fact, we see one of the major problems with his beliefs right here. For Kant, although there may be a God, he doesn't think there is, but there may be a God, if there is a God, there's no way for him to communicate with us. Because his existence would be on such a different plane of reality, it would be impossible for us to cross over to him and him to cross over to us. Therefore, if there is a God, he's not a speaking God. He's not a God who communicates to us. He's not a God who can be a real part of our lives. Now, if you find Kant's argument compelling, if you read his works, then I would simply point you to a book by Francis Schaeffer called He is There and He is Not Silent. It's kind of a philosophical howitzer that blows away Kant's thinking and shows what Jesus himself is saying here. There is a God, I'm talking to him, and he is going to talk to us. He is going to talk to his people. He is there and he is not silent. From the beginning, God has been speaking powerfully into our world. He powerfully spoke creation into existence. All that exists was made from nothing simply by the word of God. For generations, he spoke to people, his, his patriarchs, the prophets, to priests, announcing his plans, telling them how to know him, how to be made right with him. And now even today he speaks. He speaks by his word. And what is the effect on our lives when God speaks through His Word, we'll consider in these opening verses of Psalm 119. Listen to all, number one, all the different ways that the psalmist refers to God's Word. He has a rich vocabulary, but then listen for the effects that it has on him. He says, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep His testimonies, who seek Him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in His ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I will not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. So what do we see? We see walking in the law of the Lord leads to a blameless way of life. Keeping God's testimonies results in a blessed life. Walking in God's ways allows us to do no wrong. Fixing our eyes on God's commandments, being steadfast and keeping them means we'll never be put to shame. Learning God's righteous rules allows us to come into a gathering like this and to praise Him with an upright heart. If we guard our way by God's word, then our life will be one that is pure. 
Storing up God's word empowers us to not sin against God. And if we come to delight in his word, we will not easily forget it. This is the value of God speaking to us through his word. There is change, real change, lifelong, eternal change that is the natural effect of God speaking to us through the Old and New Testaments. But what makes God's word powerful? After all, some read it and nothing happens. You can hand it to a coworker and say, hey, read the Gospel of John, tell me what you think. And they'll come back and say it was boring, I couldn't get through it, I just can't believe all that stuff. You hand it to somebody else and they say, I believe Jesus is my Savior. What's the difference? The difference is what Jesus has already told us back in chapters 14 and 15 of this gospel, namely that he will send the Holy Spirit to be our helper. He is the spirit of truth who will guide the disciples to understand God's word. It is the spirit who gives life to God's word in our hearts and our minds, allowing us to understand and to be changed, to be sanctified for God. It's not surprising then that if the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth, that Jesus will refer to God's word as truth. So we are sanctified by the word. It is God's word. And secondly, it is a truthful word. It is God's word. It is a truthful word. Truthful word. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth, Jesus says. Now, first of all, notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say that God's word contains truth. That's one way of thinking about the Bible, that there are parts of it that are true. In fact, you'll find people today who go to church and they'll say that. Some parts are true and some parts are not. You can't believe the whole thing. You can't take it all literally. And if you ask them, how how do you know which is true and which isn't? They're going to say, well, you have to just really think about it. You have to use logic and reason it out. So I'm smarter than God? There's a, there's, a, there's a big problem with that, isn't there? If I'm the one that gets to decide what parts of God's word is true and what parts aren't, it's based on a completely false assumption. Jesus doesn't say that part of the word is true or that it simply contains some true things. He says, your word is truth. So men like John Wesley were surely right when they, write, when they say this, if there is one error in the Bible, then there might as well be a thousand. If there is one falsehood in the word of God, it did not come from the God of truth. Jesus says your word is truth. We cannot get around that, nor should we want to. Because what this means is that God's word is trustworthy. When we, when we open it up and we read it, we, we can be confident we're not going to be led astray. We're not going to get wrong information. We're not going to, to learn something false. No, as, as Wesley rightly says, because it comes from God, the very fountain and source of all truth, we can know with confidence that His Word is true. Furthermore, this idea of truth gets to the very nature of our sanctification. You understand the Bible is not a magic eight ball where we just kind of shake it up and we say, give me something for today. And we look at it. It's not a fortune cookie. Nor is it some kind of magical talisman. If my eyes just fall on the words, something's going to happen. So some gold pixie dust are going to rise from the pages and I will be a different person for simply having the book with me. I visited um, uh, one of our members in the hospital at one point and on my way out, a guy stopped me and said, hey, are, are, you, are you a minister? And I, and I said, yes, and I started to talk with a guy. And he was talking to me about his church and different things. And he says, uh, yeah, I have my, my Bible right here. And I said, well, what do you read in the Bible? He says, well, I don't, I don't really read it. 
And, and here, here was a guy who, who regularly attended church. He was a member of a church, but he never read the Bible. And he, and he thought it was sufficient just to have it with him, as if it would somehow ward off evil spirits or, or, or create some change just by its, its, its presence near him. That's not what the Bible says about itself. Jesus says that, that the Bible is true and it leads us to think truly about God and about ourselves and about reality. And the more that that truth begins rewriting the hard drives of our mind, the more we will find ourselves sanctified, set apart from the way the world views the world, and we'll be living according to God's ways. In other words, moral change does not simply come by feeling whether something is right or wrong and determining to do it. Moral, spiritual change comes by thinking God's thoughts after Him and by finding our lives changed. That's what it means for God's Word to be truth. God's Spirit uses it to sway us to the ways of God through our minds. So perhaps if it wasn't clear before, I hope now, as you sit here, it's beginning to come together in your mind why the Scriptures are such a big deal for us here at Crossway. We open the Bible and we read the Bible and we study the Bible and we pray from the Bible, not simply because it's a religious act, not simply because it's traditional or because we think it's the right thing to do. No, when it comes to God's Word, it's a matter of life and death. It's choosing sin or holiness. It's choosing spiritual stagnation or spiritual change. Rather than let ourselves be dragged along with the currents of the culture like a rudderless boat, we need to drop oars deep down into the water and row hard. How do we do that? By opening the book and letting God speak again and again and again and again. We joyfully labor in this great love letter from God to His people, knowing that what we'll find there are the depths of wisdom from the Eternal One Himself. Moreover, we will find a story of grace as an all-glorious sovereign stoops down into the filth of sin to rescue sinners who cannot save themselves. Here we find the very basis of our holiness in this story of the Holy God who saves sinners. What we see here in this passage is that we are sanctified for God, by the Word, and finally through the Son. We are sanctified through the Son. Jesus says, sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Have you ever been with someone and had an opportunity to talk to them when they are near death. Perhaps they're in hospice care. Perhaps they're in the hospital. Perhaps they're at home and they, and they just know. They've been told their time is short. What you find generally are people who are not talking about the weather. They could care less who won the game. They're thinking about that which is most important to them in those final moments. And Jesus is no different. 
We find him here literally in the last days of his earthly life before he goes to the cross and achieves salvation for his people. This is why he came. He came to die. This isn't an afterthought for him. It's an unfortunate set of circumstances or consequences of his actions. No, this was God's intention from before the foundation of the world that his son come and bear the reproach of his people. And here it's put in the context of sanctification. Notice the ESV that I use uses a different word here when Jesus says, I consecrate myself. Now it's interesting because it's the same word that he will later say, I consecrate myself so that they may be sanctified. It's the same word. So we could rightly render it, I sanctify myself that they might be sanctified. The question is, why did they change the word there? Well, it's because we are tempted to think that God or Jesus sanctifying himself means he somehow grows in holiness. He can't. He's God. He doesn't grow in holiness. As the divine son of God, he is always perfectly holy, always will be perfectly holy. So in that sense, they've taken a shade of the word and they've put that to the forefront because that's what Jesus is saying here. In saying, I sanctify myself, he's saying, I consecrated myself. I have set myself apart from everything else for this one thing, God, to do your will which is going to lead to the cross where I will offer my life for sinners. This is what I've been about from the very beginning. Going to the cross. A death that I don't deserve, allowing myself to be killed there, to hang dying under your divine wrath, which of all people I will not deserve. Jesus knows his death is a saving death, a death for others. He says, for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also might be sanctified in the truth. Jesus sets himself apart to the will of God so that sinners may be saved from their sin, experiencing everlasting forgiveness and be the recipients of divine mercy. Thus, the Word and the Spirit result in our holiness. That process comes from the spiritual blessings that Jesus himself secured through his cross and resurrection. So in Ephesians 1, where Paul says that every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is ours in Christ, what does that mean? In part, it means we are able to grow in holiness. We are able to be changed by God's word because Jesus first set apart himself and went to the cross. In the truest way possible, the holiness, the sanctification that we undergo as Christ people is a Christ-centered sanctification. It is a Christ-driven holiness. It is a Christ-appointed consecration. He came not just for our forgiveness, but for our holiness, for our being set apart from the world to live according to God's ways, to live for God's mission. As we think about our sanctification this morning in this regard, I hope that I have unfolded God's word in such a way that now you, you, you want to take it in, that you desire the holiness to which we have been called and you desire to see that happen through God's word. But, but let me just issue a, a word of caution. It is very easy to, to, to be sitting here and to feel moved and to feel like, you know, I haven't really been reading the Bible and now I'm going to do it. I'm going to read 10 chapters a day and it's going to be awesome. I'm just going to explode in growth. It won't happen. It won't happen. 
because even godly habits need to become habits. So, so let me just encourage you to start small. Take simple, obedient steps of exposing yourself to God's Word and allow that process to become a regular pattern of your life and then it will begin to, to grow and to grow and to grow. And, and let me also just assure you that, that though, though the process that we've been talking about is important, is vital for us, if, if you go a day, if you go a day and you've never read the Bible, God will not send you to hell. It's okay. You just pick it up the next day and keep going. And part of the reason why we have, we have kind of geared away from, although we would certainly encourage you, if that's what you want to do, go for it. But we have moved away from high-intensity reading as, as what we encourage as a church, together as a church, is because it's so easy to fail and get behind and get discouraged and never pick it back up. And so this is why we said, look, instead of going the whole Bible in one year, let's just do it in two years. You know, that translates into, for most people, five minutes of reading. Five minutes. You say, well, I still am a terrible reader. Maybe you have a, 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 a dyslexic problem. Guess what? Get the Bible for free on audio right now. You download it for free. You pop it in your car, and you listen to those two chapters, five minutes. And it's probably a pretty good sounding voice. Better than mine, I know. The point is, be encouraged that God desires you to be a part of his mission, to, to be taking the gospel of Jesus Christ. But in order for us to be effective in that, we need to be separated out from the world. All of our desires and our affections and our joys and our priorities must be different from those around us, but it's not up to us to simply make that happen. God makes that happen in us by speaking to us and changing us through the power of his spirit by his word. So take heart and take up and read. Father, we are so thankful for your word. It is such a great blessing to us. Father, we pray that we would not neglect it even as we would not desire to neglect you. Father, we pray now that you would, that you would give us faith to obey, to pick up your word and to read, to be exposed to its life-giving power by your spirit and to see ourselves day after day, week after week, year after year, increasingly look like your son Jesus in all of his glory. Father, we pray that you would speak, that we might listen from your word. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.